bow our knees and our hearts before Jesus. Lord, uh, some of our hearts are being stirred even this week as we've heard of outpouring, awakening. There's a revival that's being poured out on Asbury and other colleges and states. Lord, won't you do it again, we pray, as your people humble themselves in prayer. And so we ask that you would help us draw a line and a circle around our own self and just pray very simply, Lord, revive everything inside the circle. Lord, let it begin with me. Let it begin with us. Father, do your work through your word pointing us to Jesus. So would you do that, would you so please? And all God's people said, amen. Well, here we are in the prologue of the Gospel of Mark. And I want to share with you three great moments from the prologue of Mark. But I want to embark on this text, perhaps from an unusual place and from perhaps an unusual scripture taken from 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. Now, back in 1 Kings, Solomon is about to dedicate the newly built temple in the holy city of Jerusalem. And he's about to sacrifice 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep, and then pray a very memorable prayer there in the Old Testament. And it's a huge deal because God has promised to dwell with His people, His covenant people, right there in the temple. But before all that takes place, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The same glory which guided the people of God in their wilderness wanderings after the Exodus. So this is what 1 Kings chapter 8 says. It says, The cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled His temple. Now what's interesting is that by the time of Jesus, this great temple in Jerusalem had been rebuilt 70 years after the Babylonian exile, built by Zerubbabel and Jeshua in the book of Ezra. If you remember, Nehemiah had uh, celebrated the building of the wall around Jerusalem. So you're thinking, if you're, you know, uh, reading the Bible, okay, the people are back in the land, the sacrifices are being made in the temple, everything is good to go. Not so fast. Not so fast. You see, when they dedicate the temple, they sacrifice the animals the second time around. They pray over the temple, yet there is a huge detail missing from the narratives of Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, they dedicate the temple, rebuilt. They pray over the temple, and yet there is no glory. There is no spirit that comes and enters the temple. God's spirit never comes. In fact, here's a prayer from the book of Nehemiah. A similar prayer is offered in the book of Ezra. They say it like this, verse 36. We are still slaves today, slaves in the land. And they end this prayer not by thanking God for His Spirit, not for blowing in and, and being overwhelmed by glory. They say we are in great distress. And so they are still in exile, spiritually speaking. 
Though by the time of Jesus, they are physically back in the land, but still the spirit has not yet been poured out and the glory of God hasn't returned. And so this is a huge framework for understanding the ministry of Jesus, for who Jesus is, for what he's done there in the first century context. And so Mark cites Isaiah 40, though it's actually a tapestry of three different Old Testament texts. The greatest tapestry, the greatest thread, pulls on Isaiah 40. And so now when the New Testament writers, just as an aside, when they give you a little snippet from the Old Testament, what these New Testament writers really want you to consider is the entire context of that little snippet, that context from that passage from the Old Testament. So here's the big question. Say all that to ask you this. Isaiah 40, that Mark alludes to introducing John the Baptist, what kind of text is it? It's the return of the exile text. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would Mark cite a return of the exile text before introducing the ministry of Jesus? Here's Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Do you get it? Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And so the prophet Isaiah is picturing a highway from Babylon to Jerusalem. A smooth highway in the desert so the people of God can come home. But you're like, well, they're already there. Israel's already living in the land. But uh, uh, Mark is saying when all that happens, when you hear a voice crying out in the wilderness, what will happen? Look at verse 5 of Isaiah 40. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. Now this is exactly what did not happen during the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. But Mark says this is going to happen in and through the life and the ministry and the death of Jesus. And so we begin to understand the people of God have returned physically to the land but not spiritually. They're still waiting for the glory of the Lord. They're still waiting for God's spirit to be poured out upon them. They're still waiting for 400 years of silence for God to definitively break through into the people of God. And so Mark is saying, God in Jesus is returning definitively. Here's the voice calling out from the silence. With Jesus, there is glory. With Jesus, there is God's spirit. With Jesus, there is a return from the exile for the people of God. And so it's very interesting. There's only three references to God's spirit in the entire gospel of Mark after the prologue. Only one of those actually refers to God's spirit upon the ministry of Jesus. Yet this opening prologue makes it very clear three times, verse 8, verse 10, verse 12, Mark is saying something. The Spirit is launching the ministry of Jesus, which is simultaneously a return from the exile for the people of God. 
So what does it mean for us? In Jesus, you have for Israel, like the people of God, a moment of return. This is a moment of spiritual renewal. And so I begin to think of us here in the church. Isn't it true that you can be in the church and far from God? In the church, perhaps doing lots of Christian things, and yet if you take a look at your life spiritually, you can still be in spiritual exile. In the church, but not experiencing the power, the equipping, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Doing the sacrifices, perhaps, living in the land, but spiritually far from the Lord. And so I just want to gently nudge you and ask, is that you? Have you been in the church? Have you been living in the land, but yet you still say, Lord, I feel like I'm still far from you. And so in Jesus, we are getting an invitation to return. This is a moment of renewal, a moment of return. God is speaking to his people through Jesus. And so last week, I asked you a very simple question. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your curiosity right now in this season of life about Jesus? If you look at your life, is your curiosity maybe two or three or four? And you maybe are concerned about lots of different things, worried about lots of different things, stressed out about lots of different things. But your curiosity, do you want to say, Lord, just pique my curiosity, make my passion renew. And so today, similar question, is it time for you to return? Is it time for you to return to your first Love Jesus and seek him like you used to seek him or seek him like you've never sought him before. Jesus is longing to lead the people of God out of exile. Though they're in the land, spiritually far from the Lord. And so don't be in the land, but spiritually exiled. Scholars estimate that there are about 300,000 People coming from all over Israel to see John the Baptist in the wilderness. Remember, 25 years later, there are still disciples of John the Baptist all the way in faraway Turkey, right? They're like, we haven't even heard that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're just following John's baptism. And so what was this message of John the Baptist? He declared a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sin. And so if you look at the history of revival, there is never revival, neither personally nor corporately, without repentance. With no confession, with no repentance, there's never personal or corporate revival, which is why we come this Wednesday to start the season of Lent on Ash Wednesday, simply this Wednesday to to confess, to repent, to call out to God. In a sense, you know, we're going to convert the beach house at 6 and the chapel at noon into places of the wilderness. And we're going to cry out to God, God, change our lives. We're sorry for our sin. We're sorry for our apathy. Cover our sin by your grace. 
Repentance leads to revival on many occasions. But of course, the question on everyone's minds when they get to John the Baptist, what's with the locusts and the camel hair jacket, right? Why does Mark include these small details, but leaves out a bunch of other details that the other gospel writers place in their gospels, right? There's no information about John the Baptist's birth, no information about who his parents are, the crazy circumstances of his birth. Remember, his father couldn't speak for for a while before his birth. Not even the content of his ethical teaching. But there is a prophet in the Old Testament who also wore a what? A leather belt and wore a garment of hair. They think it was goats in the Old Testament. The prophet Elijah. Remember what the, the angel Gabriel said that John would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so scholars think that John wore the camel hair jacket inside out. Inside out to remind him and his hearers, don't get too comfortable in this life. Don't get too comfortable. Can you feel the camel hair rubbing against your skin? I'm here in the wilderness. I'm eating locusts. This is a time of renewal and confession for the people of God. Some of us, I dare say, we have bought a lazy boy recliner, spiritually speaking. Right? Like we're on the, you know, like we're back on the loafing, you know, on the lazy boy, changing channels all the day long. Don't we need more John the Baptists among us? Christian, this world is not your home. Christian, don't get too comfortable here. Christian, repent of your sins. Christian, don't forget to feel the camel hair rubbing against your skin. Because if you get too comfortable, what happens to us? Curiosity about Jesus plummets. You get too comfortable, you end up losing your first love called Jesus. And so there's this great telescoping, this narrowing about John the Baptist's role in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, he simply points to Jesus over and over with his purpose, with his mission. He is a witness to Jesus, nothing more. Mark strips away all the other details about John the Baptist. He's going to point again and again with his life to Jesus. Repent of your sin. Remember the camel hair rubbing against your skin. Are you getting too comfortable here in this world? In fact, John the Baptist points to the one thing that a slave was not expected to do for his master. There is an old rabbinic text that goes like this. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal socks. You get what John is saying? Everyone else would say in that culture, anything but the sandal thong. Not even a slave should do that lowly, lowly work. John the Baptist takes precisely that task I'm not worthy to do that, even for Jesus. There's one coming after me. He's baptizing with the Holy Spirit from on high. 
He points to Jesus. He makes Jesus big with his whole life. That's the point of his entire life. That's also the point for me and for you. That's to point to Jesus, to make Jesus big in our lives. This is a moment of renewal, John the Baptist is saying. Not even the sandal thong of Jesus. Not even the sandal thong. This is time for you to seek God again. And if God is calling you to a greater curiosity, if God is calling you for personal renewal around the person of Jesus, if God is calling you to seek again this person of Jesus, remember when you first came into the faith or maybe a season in your life when you couldn't get enough of Jesus, his forgiveness was unbelievable, his love was poured out in your life. You looked at the Gospels and you saw how much compassion can one man have. That was you in front of Jesus. Has that cooled? If it has, don't harden your heart. Ask the Lord, what are you going to do with me as I come in this moment of renewal? Of course, we've been seeing this outpouring, this awakening being poured out on Asbury. It spread to other few college campuses on February 8th, they had a, 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 a chapel service, and it hasn't stopped since February 8th. The people of God, the Gen Z, just coming out. There's not even uh, lyrics on the screen. They're just singing and praying and confessing and hearing the word of the Lord. What will God do for a people that humble themselves just like John the Baptist? Confessing our sin, spending time in prayer. Second, this is a moment of tremendous identification. Jesus bursts on the scene at verse 9. Now, you might be asking, Jesus doesn't need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But you do, and I do. And so Jesus identifies with us in this baptism, in our brokenness, in our sin, in our shame, in our guilt. Jesus is going to undergo a baptism for you in the beginning of the gospel. Sinlessness, engaging with sinfulness. Holiness, engaging and entering into the muck of our lives. Tremendous identification. He gets us, you could say, right? I won't even mention the Super Bowl, which I have like thousands of information about the Chiefs this week. But the He Gets Us commercial should have simply had a picture of Jesus' baptism. He gets us. He's entering into the fray with his people. And this baptism is actually bookend on the opposite side of the clear in uh, 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 chapter 15 with the cross of Jesus, right? And so the baptism of Jesus, you're saying, okay, he gets us. But if you ever had a doubt, the cross, he dies for us there at the cross. These two bookends in the Gospel of Mark. Let me show you how it works. Mark chapter 1, first you have the baptism of Jesus. And there you have what? The heavens being torn open, right? And then... And uh, Mark chapter 15, same Greek word, 
What's torn open? The temple from torn open from top to bottom is as if God is saying the presence of God is going to come near. The heavens are being ripped open. The, tor- the veil in the curtain and the curtain is being torn open for you. Next, the spirit in Mark 1, this the, called the pneuma, which means the wind or the breath or spirit descending upon Jesus. And then what happens? A voice declaring who Jesus is. Mark 15 on the cross, Jesus breathed. You know, this is a from two Greek words, pneo, which is closely related to pneuma, spirit. He breathed his last. And then what happens? A witness declaring who Jesus is. Mark is trying to say, hey, there's a link, great link between the baptism of Jesus and the cross, the death of Jesus in his identification with sinners. What happens next? The beginning of the gospel. You are my beloved son. And then the only time you've ever heard in the gospel of Mark an actual human voice identifying who Jesus is is with the Roman centurion, which says, truly, this man was the son of God. Same word in Mark 1 and Mark 15. And so at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus joins the ranks of sinners and stands with them. At the end of the gospel, Jesus again joins the ranks of sinners and then dies for them. Complete and utter identification with us in our Sin. Jesus is willing to walk into all the muck of your life to bring his sinlessness, his healing, his holiness into the dark, dark muckiness of our lives. And so to to capture that again, the Holy Spirit is pictured like a dove or coming down on Jesus like the form of a dove. Now, this would have been heard, especially from Mark's Roman audience, they would have picked up on this detail. This is a counter symbol to the Roman eagle. Remember, if you've seen all these movies, you see all these bird omens, right? In these old time movies based in Rome. This is not just sort of creative license by the director. The Romans loved bird omens, right? Especially the eagle, the symbol of divine favor, divine election, imperial power. Now Mark sees, and Jesus sees, a gentle dove, which would have been a counter symbol to the powerful Roman eagle, but it's communicating something significant, something momentous is happening in the baptism of Jesus. Pay close attention. There's a moment of renewal, and there's a moment of identification. And third, there is in this text, this prologue, of the Gospel of Mark, a moment of approval. A moment of approval. A few years ago, I once heard about a couple who adopted a four-year-old child with a very difficult background. And they got the child, when they received the child in their home, the child had a habit of yelling, scratching, hitting, and biting. And yet the parents loved the child. The parents were patient with this child. And every night before this sort of rebellious, difficult child that had been hurt but wasn't no fault of his own, that he was rebelling against their love. But the parents every night would ask the child a simple question. Jonathan, 
when God looks at you, what does he say? Jonathan, when God looks at you, what does he say? And they taught him to answer, God says, I sure do love that little boy. And so every night, this young adopted child would say before he got tucked in at night, God says, I sure do love this little boy. And so Jesus is hearing from heaven this voice from his father, I sure do love this boy, my son. The beautiful thing is that through Jesus, God wants to, for you to hear that same affirmation, that same voice of approval in your life, to lay down all the performance, all the earning, all the God could never accept me, God could never love me, I do this, I mess up all the time, again and again and again. Jesus wants you to hear from your heavenly Father, I sure do love that little girl. She's my girl. She's my daughter. I'm especially fond of her. I sure do love that little boy. He's my boy. He's my son. I'm especially fond of this, my son. And so even through the ministry of Jesus, can you hear, even today, despite your disinterest in Jesus, despite your cooling curiosity about Jesus, perhaps, despite the invitation that you're also hearing, is this a time of personal renewal for me? Do I need to come and seek the Lord like I've never sought the Lord? Even through all that, can you hear the voice from heaven, God approving of you? I sure do love my little boy. I sure do love my little girl. John J. Hughes writes that the deepest source of Jesus' joy was his relationship with his heavenly father. At every moment of his life, in every circumstance, Jesus knew that he was deeply loved by his father, that he was, as we might say, the apple of his father's eye. Wherever he might go that day, with whomever he spoke, in whatever situation, he remained in his father's loving embrace. A few months ago, I, I gave you that, remember that, uh, that, that text in the Old Testament? Where God says, I didn't choose Israel because they're more numerous. I simply chose them because I made a, I, I swore an oath to their parents. And we were asking, why, well, why did he swear, uh, swear an oath to his parents? Because God, nobody made God do that. And it's if God is saying to the people of God, I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you. And Jesus is hearing this very same circular reasoning, I love you because I love you because I love you. Jesus had not taught, had not healed, had not done anything for the kingdom except show up for the baptism of Jesus. And then he hears this circular reasoning, I love you because you're my son. And we're invited through Jesus to realize the same thing, your love through Jesus, God is saying to you, I love you because I love you because I love you because I love you. Nothing in you, in fact, all you bring is sin. All you bring is darkness. All you bring is your own brokenness and your guilt and your shame. Again this week, just like last week, just like the month before. And guess what? God still showers upon us his grace and his love. 
And so if that's not enough for us to return, to have this moment, even if it's not corporately, maybe just for you personally, this moment of renewal, that God is willing to enter into the muck of your life, this moment of identification, that Jesus gets you, but more than that, he's willing to bestow his sinless life in the middle of your muck. And then this moment of approval. Can you really lay down all the striving, all the stress, all the guilt, all the shame, and simply come broken hearted to a tender hearted Jesus that receives you and accepts you and knows you and sees you? Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we're, we're thankful. For Jesus in our lives, Lord, this is a, sometimes a Christianity that would make so difficult and so complex, and songs, and sitting up, and sitting down, and serving this and that, but Lord, we just want to rally around who Jesus is, Lord, we want to ask for a fresh outpouring, a fresh curiosity, a fresh motivation to return to our first love, Jesus, knowing that if we do so, we're going to be accepted. If we do so, we know we're going to be forgiven again of our sins, seen like we've never seen before. And so, Lord, won't you help us to show up, to show up for all that you might have for us. Lord, just extend our arms out towards us. And so, Lord, if you're just here and you're just praying, Lord, you, can you turn and just maybe even just open your hands? In this moment of prayer, just open your hands up toward to the Lord as a symbol of saying, as we just saying, make room. I'm going to make room in my heart for you, Jesus. Just want to live open-handedly and tender-heartedly towards Jesus. Lord, we've shut, we've given a cold shoulder, Lord. We've been hurt maybe by the church or we've been disappointed by God, and we don't know why things are unfolding in our lives the way they do, and yet we just simply want to say, come Lord Jesus, have your way with us, renew us, pour out your spirit upon us, Lord, we want to open our lives, the dark places of our hearts places where we don't think we want to take you because there's too much darkness there. We want you to shine your light right on those places. So as the, the band plays, I just want to invite you just to pray right there, to sing or pray, to worship right in those pews. If you want to pray right here, there's a team here going to be praying as we sing this last song, just to, to come to the altar to so again, just a simple prayer, Lord, enliven my heart to Jesus. Open my heart to Jesus yet again. Do it again.